Cornac is one of Australia's greatest motor vehicle designers and engineers. His partnership with Jack Brabham saw the pair net the World Formula One Championship in 1966. In this edition of Motorsport Legends Magazine's Talking with Heroes of the Sport, Tornak talks about his remarkable life from humble beginnings in Australia to reaching the pinnacle of world motorsport. Well, originally Fassifern as a kid in the bush in the 30s and uh, then uh, down to Bondi and then uh, I was in the Air Force during the war and came back and I got a, just managed to afford about a 1925 or 6 Austin 7 I was out for a Sunday drive, which you used to do in those days, and uh, going up towards Katoomba and heard this noise and there were some cars rushing down a, an airstrip, and I stopped and had a look and thought, oh, well, I might get interested in this. So after that, I, uh, I was working in the city uh, for uh, CSR Chemicals, so I used to go up to the Mitchell Library and read a few magazines at lunchtime, and then... Uh, I met the Hooper brothers and they built a 500cc car and uh, I thought, oh, that's interesting, I can afford that. So uh, I then built my first 500cc car and uh, having read these magazines, I think I probably believed what I read, which is uh, silly, and I put swinging half axles on the back, which is completely wrong, but reading it was supposed to be good. I didn't have any money, so I had read that you can have interleaf friction on the leaf springs, and that does the same job as shock absorbers. So I believed that, and I didn't have the money to buy shock absorbers anyway, so the first event was Hawkesbury Hill Climb. I took it up there, and we went up the day before to stay with a friend up there, and uh, I put it off at the bottom of the hill and thought, well, I'll drive up here and see what it's all about. I got to the first rut in the, in the road, and over she went. The wheels swung under and 14 stitches in the side of my face, so that was the start of it. We built, they built the second car for my brother, which was something like a, a Lotus 7, but Lotus 7 hadn't been made then, and uh, it was a road car special. So Jack had advertised a, uh, a Vincent uh, 500cc engine. No, it wasn't a Vincent, a Velocette. And uh, I was l- looking for engines to put into my 500cc car, so we drove up in this car and uh, into Jack's workshop, which was the back of his grandfather's house, I think. And uh, uh, I bought the thing, and he took an interest in the car, so we started talking about cars. And I saw his workshop and asked if he took on subcontract work. And he thought I meant for myself in racing, and people in racing never pay their bills. So I said, no, nothing to do with racing, I'm subcontracting for CSR Chemicals and discuss what it was so from then on I subcontracted work and we got to know one another and uh, met at races and things and uh, then when he went to England in I think 55 he wanted to uh, develop keeper cars a little bit so he'd write me an air letter and uh, ask for suggestions this was probably about a couple of years after he'd been in England when he went to keepers and I'd come back like one of the letters which I've still got that he wanted to get rid of the transverse leaf spring on top of the rear end which acted as a wishbone and put wishbones on it so I sent back a sketch with the suggested dimensions and so they did that and then I think in uh, in 59 they got the idea of this uh, low line keeper which was strictly jack 
and John Cooper, but not the old man. The old man didn't want to change anything. And Jack again wrote to me and asked for a, uh, a design for a pattern so they could drop the engine three inches or 75 millimetres because uh, it was way above the height it needed to be and he wanted to put some drop gears in. So I uh, drew the bell housing and had the pattern made in Australia and he put it under his arm and took it back to England when he came out for the Tasman series. And in the meantime he'd been to uh, the gearbox people in France and uh, told them what he wanted and they didn't want to do it in any, in, they just do mass production and he said well look let me have a look at it so he uh, beefed the pattern up with some plasticine and whatever and uh, got the gearboxes cast so they were upside down so that you could then put the uh, the power into the right thing and that dropped the engine and so that was the, uh, the low line keeper start. Tornak had already established himself as a designer and engineer of successful racing cars in Australia but his biggest challenge awaited him when Sir Jack Bratton asked him to come to Europe. partnership was building quite well via mail but eventually there came the point where Brabham wanted Tornak right by his side. When he won his world championship in the second time in 1960 came out for the Tasman series and he offered to pay my fare uh, and put me up for six months to go over there and see if I liked England and wanted to stay. Well, I was married and had a four-year-old daughter and I wasn't going to leave them behind, which Jack did when he went. And uh, so uh, I changed the deal and uh, uh, Jack wanted me to go to America on the way to race engineer his Cooper sports car there. So my wife and daughter and family goods and chattels went on the boat and I flew to America and... Uh, met up over there and looked after the Cooper and got on to England and that's that's how we uh, we got over in England and then the uh, the arrangement in England I, I uh, worked for Jack Brabham Motors initially um, doing design work for uh, various uh, sort of development of road cars I think we put uh, twin Weber carburetors on a Sunbeam Rapier and then the uh, I think it was the Herald uh, the swinging off axle rear end and whatnot, and he put the uh, Climax 1100 in the engine into that and uh, so I had to put the engine in and then sort the suspension out in the light of my previous knowledge of swinging off axles and get that working and that became a car they made quite a number of and in the meantime I was uh, designing the first Formula Junior car of a night in a, in a flat we'd rented over there and uh, when the car was designed and then uh, I suppose at some stage during this uh, a company was formed uh, called MRD for Motor Racing Developments and Jack had invested £2,000 in it 
do uh, build the first car. And so instead of being a 50-50 relationship, which was the original idea, uh, it became 60-40 in his favour. Uh, I should have been smart enough to say, look, I'll owe you half of the 2000 and I'll pay you back. But I wasn't that smart business-wise, so that's the way it worked. And so I built the Formula Junior car. And then we, uh, Jack then had a pilot's licence, and I'd been a pilot during the war. And uh, so uh, he was going to fly up to the Isle of Man to watch the race there. So he took... Uh, the SO competitions manager, Jeff Murdoch, and uh, Gavin Yule from Tasmania, and myself. So Gavin and I sat in the back seat, and on the way up I told him about this Formula Junior I'd just done, and more or less sold it to him on the way up there. He wanted to buy it, so he believed me, and so uh, I think then he raced it, uh, and he did a couple of little track events, and then the big race at Goodwood was coming up. So he went down there, and uh, he qualified on pole and uh, then that was on qualifying was I think one day and there's a day off uh, and then the race was on the Sunday and uh, so Lotus took their cars away changed the engine they got uh, um, Cosworth to put new engines in and beef them all up they came back and so uh, Gavin ended up, ended up coming third well up to that stage the car was mine uh, Jack didn't want anyone to know or Coopers to know that he was involved in it because he was going to drive for them the next year and of course once it won it, uh, he made it public that <laughs> he was involved in the car and uh, so then uh, I think uh, some that we were in a little workshop which I think Coopers had previously been been using for their race team, and so we were in there. And then uh, uh, we were going to expand, so Jack knew Repco, and they had a just put in a um, sort of a, a warehouse in Surbiton, and we uh, I think in exchange for calling their cars Repco Brabham's or Repco, yeah, because we changed the name to Brabham calling them Repco Brabham's they let us use their workshop so we, we moved into that uh, and at that stage I think I employed my first two people uh, one was uh, Peter Wilkins who had done weekend work for me in Sydney and he was, in the, was a mechanic and builder and the other one was uh, going to be a, a junior draftsman after the first year of MRD um, he was in uh, France and uh, a journalist over there said that MRD he was going to buy cars from us and be an agent and he said MRD in France was murdered or covered all over in crap and uh, wasn't a good name so Jack rang me up and asked if I had agreed to changing the name and he suggested Brabham and I didn't think quick enough so I agreed so that put me in the back and then after the first year of racing where I'd been jointly in the racing team he decided he'd like to run his own race cars because he already had his own Brabham Racing organisation for doing the Tasman series so we agreed to that and so from uh, 62 when we started with his first Formula 1 car to 65 uh, he paid £3,000 for the car less engine each year 
but there was no development because I had no interest in developing it. If we developed a joint company, never got paid for it, so I didn't bother doing that. And uh, I never go to the tracks to find out what was wanted. So at the end of '65, I said I didn't want to be involved in F1 anymore. And I think he looked around and looked for alternatives, and he came back and said, "Look, let's change it. We'll change the relationship of the percentage of uh, shares in the company and increase the wages you draw each week and uh, whatnot, and become a joint ownership again of the racing company." So this was then the Repco beginning. Uh, but Jack found the uh, F85 Oldsmobile block in America and supplied to Repco and he was more involved in the working with Repco whom he knew than I was. So that went on and uh, then in 1969 he was getting on to retiring and so I acquired his shares in the company and then, and, uh, and then he drove for me virtually in 1970. But as it happened in 1970, uh, Karen, Ken Tyrrell didn't know that I owned the company, so he approached Jack to buy a car for Jackie Stewart to drive, mm-hmm. and Jack refused. Whereas up till then we'd been selling Formula One cars to Rob Walker and whoever wanted them. Uh, so that really would have changed the way racing worked, because if Stewart and Tyrrell had my car and, and I owned the company and we joined forces, it would have changed the scene. So anyway, that went on until 1970, and uh, Jack, uh, the top mechanic, his chief mechanic, Ron Dennis, and he's uh, the really the best mechanic, and Neil Trundle, uh, decided, or oh, must have been very late in the year near Christmas, that Jack, they were convinced then Jack was finishing, and so they decided to leave and start their own business, and uh, all of a sudden I would lost my top two people and uh, so I had to look around for someone as a chief mechanic and I picked someone who was the wrong people manager because uh, there weren't many around and I asked Jack, Jack had raced for him and he said oh, he's alright so I took him on and that was a bit of a, a poor year for me because normally the mechanics had worked for whenever the cars were necessary to get them ready for the race and Jack and I would work and have a late dinner and retire maybe by 10 or 11 o'clock at night and we so had company but the following year the drivers packed up after the race and off they went the mechanics worked on and I was left in the middle to more or less be on my own and so it wasn't that enjoyable so during that year um, my driver was uh, being managed by Bernie Eccleston but I didn't know that at the time this was Jock and Rent so he introduced me to Bernie at Monaco that year and Bernie offered to buy to the business on a 50-50 basis and I said sorry now I've, I've had a, a partner who's a personal friend all these years and I don't think I want to go into partnership anymore so, uh, but I might sell you the business so he said okay <coughs> so I evaluated the business uh, and I was going to sell it to him for uh, uh, the assets value and so that was agreed and so after the end of that season in 71 uh, that was another year after Jack had retired uh, not the bad year really so I sold it out to Bernie We look at the Rolt years next as Tornak ventures out and creates one of the most successful manufacturers of open wheel racing cars the world has ever known 
Following the sale of Brabham F1, brief hiatus in Australia, Tornak returned to England, helping with the development of Sir Frank Williams' early involvement in Formula One. And the Trojan Racing Team, which Australian Tim Schenken drove for in 1974. Frank Williams rang me up and asked me if uh, I'd go to South Africa and look after one of his cars. So I went in down there. Uh, well, I saved the disaster down there. I don't know whether you want to hear about that. I, we just arrived and went to the circuit and they'd been practicing the day before, uh, or that day, and the input shaft of the gearbox had seized in the bronze bush in the back of the Coventry uh, of, the, of the engine. And uh, the mechanics had hooked uh, the engine and the chassis part onto a truck and they had a hire car on the back and they were tying it to the gearbox and they were just about to try and pull the bloody thing apart. I don't know what would have broken. <laughs> I just arrived in time so I don't do that. I stopped it and so I fixed the thing properly. Uh, I ended up fairly easy. You just take the gearbox to pieces and just get left with the shaft in there and then where the bush is you drill a hole into the bush and uh, you pump uh, uh, grease in there and the hydraulic pressure just pushes the bush out and you start to scratch. It was fairly easy. But, boy, saved that disaster. So uh, that was that. And, of course, when I got back, it just it was obvious there was just no job for me. So uh, then I did some consulting work, uh, again with Frank for a while, on and off. He had a couple of people build cars for him and they'd get it about 90% finished and walk off the job. I don't know why, whether they didn't, he didn't, get, didn't pay them or there was some other disagreement, so he'd call me in to finish the cars off. So I did that with the Poly Toys and, and one other car, I forget the name of it. Uh, it was quite well designed, the other one. Uh, so I finished them off. And then uh, somehow Trojan got in touch with me. And so I went and uh, worked for Trojan. And uh, it was just a part-time consultant thing and uh, I think the first job was they, they had a deal with uh, McLaren and they'd build the production cars for McLaren so they had a form of 5,000 and they wanted to do their own so I uh, I then did the redesign on the previous 5,000 and did that and uh, that got running but I think it was about the end of the series I don't know that they sold many of those and then they wanted to do a new car and uh, I was going to do a, a new 5000 and I said look for the same cost we can do a Formula 1 car why don't we do that so they said ok so uh, I designed a, an F1 car because it was a production engine and gearbox you'd buy yeah. and uh, a Cosworth engine, engine on a heel and gearbox and uh, I got going and I thought I needed a, a helping draftsman so I met Patrick Head at a practice meeting somewhere and uh, got talking to him and I thought he knew his stuff so I employed him so the two of us then did the F1 Trojan and uh, but there was, it was only had I think 50,000 pounds and we had to buy engines and pay the wages and do everything so it was a pretty tight ship so we did that but it never really came to very much and so at the end of that I was at home and uh, or well, I was still consultant to them and uh, someone pulled up in my my house I had at a drive around in the front garden so 
fellow with a car and with a trailer on the back, a car on that, pulled up and knocked on the door and happened to be Larry Perkins. I don't know whether I knew him before or not, but he obviously knew of me. He, he asked me to have a look at the car and see what he could do to improve it. I think it was a GRD. So I wandered round it and had a look at it and he said, uh, what can we do to improve it? And I said, jeez, I think it would be easier to start again. He said, OK, let's do it. So uh, uh, I thought I will. And I think uh, my, glad, my wife was glad to get me out of the house because I'd never been home. I used to work seven, seven days a week and five nights and go off to race meetings all weekend. And uh, so she was keen for me to start again. So she found a... I think initially I started drawing the car in a spare room in the house and uh, then she found an ad in the paper for a little factory at Woking and so I went down there and bought that and it was only about 2,000 square feet and so I started building and I think uh, initially Larry and I think his brother wanted a car so that was two and then the people that used to be my agents for Brabham got to hear I was building cars again and so the two agents, one from Italy and uh, uh, I think it was Ulf, was Ulf Svensson, someone anyway up in the, uh, that area got onto me and they ordered, each ordered two cars, so that made six. And it was only going to be a hobby. Yeah. But anyway, so we started and we built those. And of course Larry went off and I think he won the uh, European Championship Formula 3 the first year. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so then the orders started coming in and it just got bigger and bigger and... And Rolt became a name synonymous with solid, safe and reliable open-wheel racing cars that could be purchased ready to win. So the name has to come about some stage. Yeah, well, we re-established the name of Rolt because I had Rolt here before I went to England. It was a combination of uh, my brother was Austin Lewis Turanek and I was Ron Turanek, so we had to put the A in as well rather than just one of his initials. Uh, otherwise, In fact, the Australians, when they wrote to us in England, they used to call it the Rat Factory. <laughs> And so uh, that's where the name came, just resurrected the old name. Uh, well, uh, uh, you know, at one stage there you're winning national championships all across the continent, all across Australia with your cars. What was the, uh, the business? What size did that business get to? Because you said early in the piece you didn't have the business now. No, well, I, I didn't uh, commercially. Uh, but I knew what to do to build racing cars and um, what happened after those first half dozen the year then the orders started coming in so I employed a few more people uh, got up to about half a dozen people in that little building and I bought uh, I bought a, the odd lathe and a little bit of machinery and uh, then Bernie moved or after about I suppose 74 I started and the thing grew, and in about, must have been about 78, Bernie moved out of Jack Brabham's factory, and so I bought the factory off Jack uh, on, a, on a deal where I think I got a, a reasonable price because I had to allow room in the workshop for uh, David Brabham to run his car from. That was part of the deal for the year. So I bought that the factory for that and so we moved in there and then uh, so I was able to expand 
and the orders just kept coming in. And I think I had a, uh, a different outlook to other people because most other designers like Colin Chapman and that, they run their business uh, and they had a, a separate uh, ta- uh, house in the city where he had his girlfriend <laughs> and uh, uh, he employed designers and just go, said, well, we want to do this and they did the car. Uh, whereas I did my own and uh, I think some of his designers built themselves into a corner and they had a deadline so ended up with a fair bit of complication in the car because uh, we didn't have computers to lay out all the plumbing and everything and uh, so my cars were always fairly simple and I used to think well any new formula will be in for about five years and I used to think of the ultimate car I could build in five years time and I'd back off to build one that I thought was just good enough to beat the opposition. And then I could, every year I just did a bit of development on that car towards the five year period. And so the previous car, people could buy updates, but the people with money and, and sponsorship would win with it and they'd buy another one and they'd get a good price for the old one. And so that really made my things a lot better buying than these other cars that only lasted a year and then they're out of, out of fashion. Uh, I mean, in America in particular, for a former Atlantic, those cars lasted 10 or 15 years, and they could still win a race. So uh, it was only if something special, different come in, like ground effects, and then you had to start again. And what would happen with my cars, uh, I'd lay out all the basic design and get frame subcontracted and get it all going so it was left just to do the plumbing uh, and the wiring and I'd go away for two weeks skiing holiday every Christmas because <laughs> I only missed about four days of work the rest was a holiday and in that four days the people were left the mechanics to plumb and wire the prototype and I'd come back and have a look at it and uh, have a stopwatch in my pocket and get someone to do an engine change and time it and uh, then asked them if they had any ideas to improve it and I look at the plumbing and uh, there's brackets everywhere to hold everything and I'd, and I'd suggest or get someone to suggest that you now you could make one bracket do all these things and simplify the whole thing so then we'd start and do the next car with it all simplified. Now I think the people that uh, worked for me uh, thought because I had everyone's ideas and I picked the best and then you had to get on with it they thought I was being a dictator yeah. and they, they, they said you had to do it my way but I was just picking the best of what was there and if someone asked me how and why they were doing it I would tell them but I'd tell them once I wasn't go over and over the thing and I never ever sort of because the other big difference between me and uh, the other big names is that people like Lotus in particular they paid journalists uh, on the side to look after them so if a car won a race and it was a Lotus the Lotus won the race with so and so driving it mm-hmm. if a Brabham or then a Rolt won the race the driver won the race and somewhere down the article they find he was driving a Rolt if you're lucky so it was a completely different kettle of fish because I never paid anyone in the pocket I didn't know how to I wasn't in that sort of uh, I never, never knew about those things I don't think I didn't want to know You've built some amazing race cars, some extremely successful race cars. Is there a top five, perhaps, that you've got? I wouldn't remember. How many cars have you built? 
Uh, I think it's about 1,650. And out of that, how many different designs? There was about 500 Brabham's and the rest were Ralt's. But I don't know how many different designs. Because originally, with Ralt, we just called them RT1's and they happened to be a, a Formula Junior, Formula 2, Formula 3, Formula Atlantic, Formula Super V. And then only when... Uh, and we just changed the amount of uh, petrol tank space and maybe the, the tyres or the brakes to suit the different formula. And then a bit later on, uh, if you could see what was happening in the reg, so we made a different car for each formula. So I think we called them, uh, there was an RT4, I think it was the Atlantic and various other names, but how many? Just read Mike Lawrence's book, it's all listed in there. How many cars? That's where I added up how many I'd built. <laughs> because I, I just, uh, uh, there are a lot of magazine articles, but I just had big cartons and I just toss any articles in this cart in a box and when I'd sold uh, out uh, uh, Rolt to March Engineering uh, in 88 or 9 uh, we were moving from a big house into an apartment and I thought, what the hell do I do with all this stuff? I haven't got room for it anywhere and this chap had been going Mike Lawrence had been talking to a friend who knew me uh, that he, to write a book and I wasn't interested. And then when we got a move house, I thought, oh, well, I'll get back onto this chap that knows the fellow that wants to write the book. He made contact and Mike Lawrence got in touch with me and we just gave him the whole cart and so he had that. And he also was fairly well placed to write the book because he'd already written the, the book on March and the book on... Uh, Reynard, yeah. He'd written those two books and he was uh, taught at literature, I think, at the uh, University of, New of uh, oh, Southampton and that was near Goodwood, so he attended a lot of the practice sessions at Goodwood and so he knew everything that was going on in racing. He knew more than I did. So I thought, OK, so he wrote the book and uh, people that read it reckon it's a good story because I said, look, if you're going to write a book, I don't want to go race by race and he did this and that. I said, write a story. And I said, if you want to, you can put a glossary in the back and list the number of cars and he did that. So now I keep a book handy because people ring me up and want to know what car was this and I just look up the page. Oh, so-and-so. <laughs> you can't remember them. I can't remember that many. Next up, we continue our chat with Ron Tornak, finding out his thoughts on Formula One today and the people he came across in his time at the pinnacle of world motorsport. Like Ron Turnex, across 30 years in and around Formula One, he's been involved with some of the greatest names of the sport. I don't know that I was heavily involved with them. Uh, I just, when, when Ron Dennis left, uh, he wanted a couple of cars, probably Formula Two at the time, I'm not sure about Formula Two, and uh, he didn't have the money to buy them, so I lent him or two cars for the year and he paid for them at the end of the year which I think he acknowledges now in some print uh, even though it left me a little bit in, in the lurch 
Bernie then had uh, the Brabham name, yeah, and he he ran that up right to the night. MRD. Oh, you sold him. MRD. That was the name that I sold him. But the cars were, I think we still call them Brabhams, uh, which was an advantage to him because when he sold the business, he sold the Brabham business and the MRD business, and uh, so it goes on. Um, and so I, uh, he then I think after a short while, uh, I. Took my, I normally used to take my holiday at Christmas, the only time in the year with the factory would have a week off and I'd have two weeks and go skiing. And when i come back, he'd done a deal with uh, the motorbike chap uh, and was going to buy him out and he was going to run the business. And I got back and all the drawing boards were used up and <laughs> there was no real place for me, even though I was still the MD of the company. So anyway, I... I Took a, got a drawing board at home and I drew at home and carried on working and uh, I think I think at one stage because we did all the wages in house except mine and mine were done by the accountants so that, that no one else knew what it was and he told the accountant not to do my wages anymore uh, he was obviously instead of coming up front and saying look let's do a deal I don't want you it didn't happen that way. So I, uh, the, the accountant just said, look, I'll, I'll ring you and tell you how much to draw each week, but I won't do anything else, and you just draw the money. So I did that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was obviously I was, I was on the outer. When I was going to start Ralt again, I did the decent thing, because he'd stopped making production cars, and I rang him up and asked him if he'd mind if I went back into business doing that. And he said, no, OK. Uh, otherwise, I've uh, done nothing. Uh, I, the, the next time we were in contact was uh, when uh, a chap had written uh, Bernie's story. Uh, again, I forget his name. He's just written the second one about him. And he interviewed me on the telephone about Bernie. And I told him about the deal that... Uh, Bernie had done with me how it was going to be the business was to be sold for uh, assets value, and I valued it, it was all valued at the cost price of everything, all legitimate, 130,000 pounds, and it was all agreed. And right at the 11th hour, when I had sort of quit my relationships with everything and arranged for me to take the wife and two kids out to Australia for a holiday for a month or so, he rings me up and offered me uh, 100,000 for it instead of 130. And I thought, Jesus, I should have said to him, look, you're a man of your word, you've offered me this, you can't change your mind. But I didn't think of those things at the time. I was smart enough. I just thought about what a bloody disaster if I don't take it. So I took his money. And as it happened, apart from the value of the things, I didn't realise, but I had £60,000 in the bank, which should have been an asset. Or I should have drawn it out and paid tax on it. But I didn't think of that thing. And I'd just formed an overseas company to, uh, um, to sell cars to America and everywhere from the offshore company. Mm-hmm. And it was all done legit. I had, uh, Out of the Isle of Man. The Isle of Man, yeah, and the, uh, yeah, I think it was something like that. And the, uh, accountant had gone to, uh, the, the lawyers and got it all certified that it was legal and I didn't realise that that was a subsidiary company I didn't realise he was going to get that too so he got that and whatever money was in that so he got a good deal I could have just shut it down taken the money 
and then just sold the spares off for profit. But anyway, they didn't. And what does Tornak think of the engineering in Formula One today? I talk about money. And you see, the, uh, the people now, there's very few people that know all over about the car. In my day, there was one bloke that knew, and you'd go to a race engineering, <coughs> and uh, the driver would pull up and tell you what the car was doing, and you can make adjustments, and out he'd go, all in minutes. Now they've got to download the computer. Do you think the change now, where the engineer has uh, got more information than the driver has, is, is a good thing for motor racing? He hasn't got the information he's had. It's all on, downloaded from electronic controls and downloaded into his computer and just analyses that. But as far as being able to uh, listen to a driver and say what to do, it doesn't happen, I don't think, anymore. Some of them know about it, but not, not too many. Do you think that the, the, there were better drivers out there perhaps in those early days but they weren't able to communicate back what they needed and it was perhaps yours and Jack's ability to, to talk and work through these problems? Oh, I, I don't know because uh, other drivers, it wasn't only Jack that was good in my cars was a, we've only got to look at how many won all sorts of races uh, and they communicated in their own teams with their, their, their drivers and so forth. I think uh, Jack probably put himself at a little bit of a disadvantage in some way as far as publicity goes uh, because uh, he wasn't a very good communicator with the, with the press or anything uh, and I wasn't and, uh, and we didn't bribe any of the journalists as others did. Uh, and also Jack never drove a race faster than he needed to to get the position that he could get if he obviously felt he couldn't beat the first bloke he'd come second just ahead of the third bloke whereas if he'd pushed on he might have made the first bloke make a mistake or blow up or something but Jack just uh, was very good at preserving the car uh, and when, when Rint drove for us, Rint's got this reputation of being a really top driver, and he was. But like I remember at Zandvoort, they were both driving the same car, uh, or it was a similar car. But uh, I, mean, I think Jack qualified about a, maybe a tenth of a second slower than Rint up in the front row. Uh, but uh, after each race, you'd have to. Uh, take the head off rinse engine and redo all the valve gear because he'd kept the thing up at 10,000 RPM with all in gear changes where Jack would just take it and, and go through the gears and, and if there was a corner coming up and he knew that he was, if he changed gear up he was going to have to change down again he just backed off and arrived at the corner and just saved the engine his engine and maybe five races for, against rinse one and yet he was nearly as quick, but again he didn't push those things and he's just saved the car. It was just a completely different way of, of doing it because being a good engineer himself, he knew what he had to do to save it. I guess that's uh, the, the, uh, the ultimate difference between someone who's very fast and someone who uh, tries to uh, get the most out of their equipment. I, I always remember um, Alan Grice saying, well, I'll win if the car's strong enough. Yeah. Well, of course, with those V8s, it's all about tyres. 
and you've got to be able to manage your tyres because there's a limited amount of tyres and choose the right ones and which ones you you change whether you do just the one side or the back or the front and and uh, the drivers have really got to learn how to how to drive to save their tyres and the, and the people running the team have also got to know what to do. Ron Tornak is a truly remarkable engineer and designer. On Australia Day in 2002, he was awarded the Officer of the Order of Australia for his services to motor racing, car design and engineering. He still maintains his links to engineering as a judge of the Formula SAE competition in Melbourne, where he lives today. I'm Craig Revell. Thanks for joining us on this edition of Motorsport Legends Magazine's Talking with Heroes of the Sport.